favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. So middle school, uh, when I was in band, I started on the flute, and a couple years in, my teacher hands me this thing, the oboe, and I'm like, all right, cool, I guess I'm going to play this. What was good about that is it's actually a pretty rare enough instrument, or at least it was at the time, that few people played it, and so it really helped me uh, in terms of like paying for college and things like that. So I played the flute when it was marching season, I played the oboe when it's concert season, so I took that into college, um, you know, and was on a music scholarship to go to the school that I was at without having to be a music major. But in the process, I had to be in a bunch of different groups. So uh, I was in the actual concert band, and our school had this kind of like orchestra pop thing. Uh, and so I played the oboe for this orchestra pop group, choir. Uh, and is, as is normally the case, oboe sits generally next to the clarinets. So things go fine. I'm sitting next to the clarinets. The first clarinet player, though, is this kid who just plays too damn loud. He's always playing the same stupid pieces of music to warm up. And it just drove me nuts, um, which com was compounded by the fact that he was also in another class of mine as well. Um, this was actually a basic religion class. And so, you know, I show up to class on time. It was an early class. I think it was like an 8 a.m. or a 9 a.m. class. And kid's in my class, but he never shows up on time. So he, you know, shows up like an hour late. He sits next to me. He begs me for my notes just about every day. I never gave them to him. I mean, come on. A year and a half then goes by. Uh, we start hanging out with the same group of people. We're in the same choir, obviously. So I'm um, hanging around the same group of music kids. And he tells me at that point to start reading this book, Point Counterpoint. At the beginning, I resisted. I was not going to do anything he told me to do, one. And I was already so deep in all of my major coursework. At that point, I was in a Tolkien and Lewis class, so I was reading Chronicles of Narnia, all seven of those, plus all three of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so I was just really overloaded with stuff that I was already reading, plus all of the ethics work that I was doing for an ethics class I was taking, all the history of Western philosophy that I was dealing with. And besides, he bugged. So eventually we're friends. I read the book. We start dating. I read the book several more times. I read a bunch of papers on it. We get married. I teach the book to my philosophy class. And now we have a kid. He still annoyingly plays the same damn lines of music to warm up. I guess I'll forgive him, though. So regardless, this book comes to mean a great deal of many things to me uh, on a million different levels. Uh, for our rehearsal dinner, I gave my husband Andy the first edition copy uh, that a friend of mine, Jackie, actually had found. Thanks, Jack. Uh, I've acquired about seven or more first edition copies from students and friends since then. I've got a full entire, you know, section of my home library that's devoted to Huxley. I've got multiple copies of this book in particular. Uh, in my classroom, uh, with students who find it valuable and meaningful, it's become kind of the basis of our own coded language. You definitely don't want to be a Walter. God forbid you ever become a Marjorie. Uh, and it colors just about every perception of the world that I have uh, and, and the people in it. It's the best written English I've ever read. Uh, and I've since begun collecting just about everything that Huxley's written, including poetry, which isn't really the best. I'm kind of ashamed to admit that. Um, he also has a kid's book that we bought for Eleanor. I've got every single novel, tons of short stories, his screenplays, travel books, essays, pretty much everything I can find. Uh, if I see anything of his in a bookstore anywhere, no matter where I'm at, uh, I, I bought an edition of The um, Devil of Loudon while we were up in Mammoth. So I'm probably buying it if I see it. 
Uh, every paper of importance that I've ever written for my own education has been either directly or some way indirectly based on Huxley's philosophies or explicitly referencing them. Uh, I am owe a lot to his work. He is, bar none, of course, invited to my if you could ever have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be party. Uh, I've never been more excited really to talk about anything in my career. I built this philosophy and literature class that I teach so I could teach this book. It's not an accident. Uh, my child is named after a character in the book. And while I like Eleanor Quarles in the book, I don't exactly hope that my Eleanor will be much like her. But the name is just beautiful. I can't really put into words what this book means to me other than pretty much basically everything. So I look forward to sharing it with you. Uh, this will be a pretty special series. I'll also be posting bonus content throughout. Uh, I've got a lot of current and former students who have expressed interest in being kind of a collaborative part of this process. And so we'll be recording some of our conversations about the characters and the situations in the novel. Uh, and Andy will join me for the final episode. So you can listen to our spirited argument about the meaning and the ultimate conclusions of Huxley's philosophies and his work. And of course, while this is a very philosophical novel on its own, a novel of ideas as it's called, I'll still be filling in the details with various philosophical views that are pertinent to each of the characters as he or she lives them, or doesn't live them, um, by the view of life that they claim. Aldous Huxley's life experiences certainly play a role in the kind of thinker and writer he became. He was born in 1894 in Surrey. Uh, his original aspirations were that of science. Uh, he came from a family of scientific background. His grandfather was T.H. Huxley, who people usually refer to as Darwin's bulldog. Uh, he was a strong advocate for Darwinian theories of evolution. Interestingly, though, he's also got a mix on the other side of his family. His father was also a writer, but his mother was the niece of famous poet Matthew Arnold. So his mother died when he was 14. He had some other family issues, um, a brother or half-brother that committed suicide. Uh, in the same time period, he suffered an attack of what's called keratitis punctata. It left him almost totally blind for about 18 months. And while he eventually kind of recovered some of his sight, got some pretty um, special glasses to help him see, there were definitely some long-lasting negative effects uh, that he carried because of this for the rest of his life. So with sight, then also went his ability to be a scientist, or at least that's what he thought. And so instead of wallowing in self-pity and giving up, uh, Huxley taught himself how to read Braille and basically devoted himself to just voraciously reading. This much is absolutely clear in the things that you read of his. He's got an amazing command of syntax, uh, an extensive vocabulary, the nuance of language from him that just comes from having read and read and read. Uh, it's also incredibly clear that the content also is influenced by the amount of stuff that he wrote. He just knew everything. Uh, I honestly wish he knew less French, though, because uh, I've been working through kind of this audio book for my students in this class, and I have, it's just, I have to stop and start and stop and start because I, I don't know French. Um, so here I am with Google Translate on repeat for hours and hours just trying to do my best to pronounce anything. It's super frustrating, but at least my kids will have something. So I guess that's a consolation. Anyway, Huxley received his credentials in English uh, from Oxford in 1916. He obviously escaped World War I. It wasn't something that he had to go to, unlike many writers of his generation. So I guess that's a fortunate aspect of that. Um, he did spend time traveling. Uh, in the time that he was traveling, he also became really close friends with D.H. Lawrence, who's another famous writer at this time. He's written a bunch of different works of note, um, Sons and Lovers and Lady Shatterley's Lover. Um, 
And so D.H. Lawrence actually does make an appearance in this book. In fact, there are several famous writers that make an appearance in Point Counterpoint. Um, many believed he was the foundational influence for the character Mark Rampion, who we'll spend some time discussing in depth a little bit more into this series. Uh, but like many of his contemporaries, Huxley wrote in critique of his time period and the people that were populating it, uh, specifically the ills of modern society, the fragmentation of the modern world, uh, obviously the effects of World War One and eventually then World War Two later in his career. Point Counterpoint was written in 1928. It's a direct criticism of society. Uh, it's a direct response to a lot of the observed effects of World War One, things that he saw, um, the prolongation of uh, Enlightenment ideas, uh, and of course the scientific revolution, though from a much later standpoint. He does so through a multiplicity of vantage points. There's a variety of different ways of life that are explored by a variety of different characters uh, and similar ways of life that they carry out by different people. Um, the book itself is called A Novel of Ideas. It's a super elitist, stylistic genre. It's much more focused on the transmission of meaning and questionings of systems than it is necessarily on plot. But don't get me wrong, there's still definitely storyline in this one. In fact, there's something like 20 plus characters to follow. So many characters. Um, but it's not in the sense that the characters provide kind of an allegorical figurehead for philosophies. No, they're real people. Uh, but the best part about it is the absolute artistic brilliance. The culmination of all the motifs that are drawn from art, from music, biological and psychological principles. All the fragmented and confused compounds of modern living in it are critiqued. For example, one of the main characters, Philip, uh, says in passing to his wife on a cruise ship about mid-book, however queer the picture is, which this novel really is aiming to be more than, um, it can never be half so odd as the original reality. We take it for granted, but the moment you start thinking, it becomes queer, and the more you think, the queerer it grows. When you reflect on the evolutionary processes, the human patience and genius, the social organization that have made it possible for us to be here, with stokers having heat apoplexy for our benefit, a steam turbine's doing 5,000 revolutions a minute, and the sea being blue, and the rays of light not flowing around obstacles so that there's a shadow, and the sun all the time providing us with energy to live and think. When you think of all this and a million other things, you must see that nothing could be queerer, and that no picture can be queer enough to do justice to the facts. Huxley's most famous novel, of course, Brave New World, uh, was published in 1931, and then he moved to the U.S. He was right here in Los Angeles, California, uh, thinking that the temperate weather here would help his eyesight some. It's here that he got really deep into his essay writing. Uh, it's where you get things like his 1954 piece, The Doors of Perception, which is clearly an influence for Jim Morrison's band, The Doors. Uh, it's pieces like these and his own spiritual interest in Hindu philosophy that is perennialism made him the guru of Cali hippies. Sadly, though, uh, his career was pretty much overshadowed in, in a lot of ways that really weren't his own fault. Uh, while everyone in the 20s and 30s were busying themselves, and justifiably so, with the poetry of T.S. Eliot, uh, Huxley persisted. But it's really a result of the circumstances of his death that he's kind of, in, unfortunately, in a way, forgotten. He died November 22nd, 1963. Pretty bad day for the world. Uh, it's the same day as the assassination of JFK. And another famous writer, C.S. Lewis, also died that day. It just wasn't a good day. Um, his novels are not exactly connected. He's not writing a series. Uh, though there are a lot of important philosophical overlaps. Point Counterpoint is basically the problem. 
Brave New World, in essence, is the problem taken to extremes. He has another piece, Ape in Essence, which he wrote after the dropping of the atom bomb, uh, which is particularly apocalyptic and extremely hopeless. And then his final novel in 1963, Island, uh, which was actually published posthumously, provides for us some practical answers. Uh, Although my husband and I also argue about the ending of that one and what it says for Huxley's own belief in his advocated theories. Uh, I still find it a positive answer. I think my husband's wrong on this one. You can even tell him I said so. I don't care. But since we'll be focusing on the problem here, uh, we'll work our way through the human zoology that is point-counterpoint. That characters somewhat create this three-dimensional model of binary oppositions of metaphysical, ethical, uh, and epistemic views. Uh, These philosophies become, in a lot of ways, means to an end, although sometimes they are even the ends themselves. However, rarely do any of the characters follow their own advice, their own belief systems, or sufficiently even embody those ideas. They're full of contradiction and hypocrisy, which, to be fair, is true of all of us. Hell, I'd contend that none of the characters in this book even do so, even though a lot of the characters in the book will attribute that consistency to Rampion, uh, and so critics have fairly consistently advocated that Rampion is the answer, which I think is completely wrong, or that D.H. Lawrence Huxley believed was the answer, which I think is also wrong. Uh, When we get to him deeper in this series, I'll make sure to explain what I mean by those opinions here. Anyway, it's dense, it's psychologically complex, And it's a fusion of all these contrary desires and incongruities that we have. And it's just the best book ever. Period. I can't really be convinced otherwise, so I hope you enjoyed this journey with me. But before we dive in and discuss the specifics of the novel, uh, I have to back up for a moment and talk a little bit about John Dewey, who was one of the more influential philosophers on Huxley's writing. John Dewey was an American philosopher. His ideas were incredibly contemporary to Huxley's own writing career. So as a result, you see lots of instances where John Dewey and Huxley kind of fuse in their thinking. Uh, This is probably most apparent in Island, uh, but there are places that are certainly applicable here in Point Counterpoint. In 1910, Dewey published a quick little work called How We Think, which details a number of things. But perhaps my personal favorite selection in this one is the final chapter, which gets into the influence of language and in particular the language of education. Uh, I've been reading a ton of Dewey lately for my own kind of educational research, and his stuff has just been really influential in educational philosophy, although it's kind of disappeared. It's odd. You don't see many full-fledged educational philosophers these days. You see a lot of people doing strategies and methodology and praxis, but I'm talking like abstract theoretical approaches to the concept education, not just like practical bureaucracy. So it's been really cool lately, uh, after stumbling upon Dewey myself over the course of a lot of different avenues in Huxley's writing, uh, it's been really neat to see how a lot of people are reading and studying and presenting on him again after that weird hiatus. It's still kind of scary, though. Dewey critiques, um, they come from mid-century education, 1950s, and yet so many of his criticisms are still so very applicable today, which they shouldn't be. Uh, I know education is slow to change, and it's understandably so, it's huge, but yikes. The distance between subject matter, the compartmentalization of knowledge and thinking and skill, uh, all the trending towards memorization and regurgitation of information are all things he talks about, and they're all still true today. So hopefully now that people are re-engaging his stuff, maybe this time we'll get there. I don't know, maybe that's some wishful thinking. So in this final chapter of How We Think, He makes a couple of important critiques that explain from a linguistic standpoint the issues surrounding fragmentation. 
Like Huxley, Dewey takes issue with compartmentalizing, and particularly the way that we do so in education, and the focus on knowledge over and above free and creative thinking. It leaves us in a position to, I think, actually know less, or at least understanding maybe less. And it's not even just traditional models of education at his time that he's taking to task. He criticizes also reform movements, uh, ones that were laying claim to teaching things and not words where practical doing and skills were pushed in favor of concept learning. Uh, but like the traditional model, this commits the same folly. It pushes one idea over another, it favors one way of education at the behest of another. So instead of the traditional abstract model, these reform models went the opposite extreme, practical. But neither really addresses the other, which in reality, they're really informed by each other. In the traditional model, as he contends, the uh, teaching of concepts and specific vocabulary ends up being an issue because students don't really have any issue or e reason to use words. Uh, there's no practical occasion where they can employ them. While this isn't the fault of the student, and he does contend that to some degree teachers of this time had some responsibility in this, that rather than allowing students to talk or work through things, make mistakes, teachers dominate the classroom discourse. This is the lecture model. I need to pause for a second. Yes, I am fully aware of the complete hypocrisy of all of this right now as I record myself, the teacher, using words without the discourse. Hopefully, though, there are avenues being employed in my classroom to counterbalance this tendency. Like I said, Dewey is all about employing all the models. And as my husband says, ¿Por qué no los dos? So to return, what happens in the speech-dominated situation is that mistakes are over-exaggerated, both in students' discussions and in their writing, and so the use of language is so poor that there's no place to integrate and develop it. As a result, we all get somewhat lazy with language. We use words that are kind of right, but not really. The difference between tree and magnolia, or car and 1966 Corvette. While the first words are sufficiently practical, they aren't really vivid, and they aren't in a lot of ways actually correct. It stunts our thinking. Huxley was very sympathetic to all of this. Each character, while generally intelligent, makes a similar move. One view over and above and at the behest of another. Even when they know that the view they're operating with on isn't sufficient, Really, though, few of the characters even recognize the fault in their own philosophies, and in a lot of ways it's like coming up against the moment of paradox in Kierkegaard's philosophy, something we'll have to come back to in the process of the series. Uh, but there is one character who is at least consciously recognizing the folly of ascribing to a single idea, and desires otherwise. As Philip says, The essence of a new way of looking is multiplicity, multiplicity of eyes and multiplicity of aspects seen. There's the biologist, the chemist, the physicist, the historian. Each sees professionally a different aspect of the event, a different layer of reality. What I want to do is look with all those eyes at once, with religious eyes, scientific eyes, economic eyes, etc. Like Philip, Rampion also attributes the narrow-minded views of his contemporaries to the social ills of modernity here. And he says, Civilization is harmony and completeness, reason, feeling, instinct, the life of the body. You can be a barbarian of the intellect as well as of the body, a barbarian of the soul and of the feelings as well as of sensuality. Christianity made us barbarians of the soul, and now science is making us barbarians of the intellect. And there are many hints like this throughout the text, and of course, 
many hypocrisies that help bury that point. Even the most narrow-mindedly hedonistic character in the book will play the wise fool in saying one should have all the experiences, and even Philip will contradict himself by claiming that one should be loyal to one's instincts. But at least both Dewey in his philosophies and Huxley in Life and Works will provide for us an answer. It's just a matter of searching it out. And note that it starts with an education that is varied and also applicably practiced. As Huxley says in my favorite quote ever, it's from Island, nothing short of everything will really do. Well, since we're at it, looking at answers and conclusions and stuff, we might as well jump right into point-counterpoint where it counts. So I'm going to skip us ahead for a moment to second chapter. While Huxley may have himself claimed that the title point-counterpoint was more of a scientific mathematical title, it's really hard to deny the musical influence as well, and in particular the explicit mention here of Bach in the party scene at the Tantamount House, which makes the concept of musical counterpoint an obvious motif. Chapter 2 provides a lot uh, of introduction to characters. You get a lot of the major characters and the minor characters throughout the text in this section. It starts with a beautifully constructed sentence. Three Italian ghosts unobtrusively haunt the eastern end of Pall Mall. These Italian ghosts are three really large ornate houses of the rich on the block, one of which is occupied by the Tantamount family. They're an old money family led by Lord Edward Tantamount, who's a scientist by hobby, and his wife Hilda, who does the work of maintaining the rich reputation. As this is the 20s, there are hints that suggest that, like in Great Gatsby, the new money upper middle class is emerging in a way that kind of discredits some of the extent of old money inheritance families, like the Tantamounts. And so their culture is in a way kind of diminishing over time, but they're still actively here seeking to continue that rich influence. Lord Edward is from a political family who, it's hinted at, may have come to their money somewhat dishonestly, or maybe there's something morally suspect, uh, but he's not himself very political. In fact, he hates politics. Uh, in a freak chance, Lord Edward's reading an article about biological transubstantiation, and he finds his passion. Uh, someone with inordinate amounts of wealth, he sets himself up a lab upstairs. He hires himself a lab assistant, Frank Illage. We'll come back to him later. Uh, and he starts playing with the cell regenerative processes of newts. And yet, despite the way he yells at others later in the party about not contributing important things to society, he just plays at science. Here he is, discovering stem cell research in this scene, and none of it will leave his lab. None of it will be published. None of it will be used to benefit anyone. So anyway, his wife Hilda takes on the tasks of appearances. Uh, the relationship between them is a pretty formal one. Uh, we find out later that Lady Edward had some extramarital dealings with a famous but now aging painter, John Bidlake. At the party, they stand here commiserating in the corner, instigating and criticizing everyone that's there, uh, many of whom they hate. Strange how that works. Host a party, invite people you can't stand. But more important than the characters in this opening scene of the chapter is this strangely passing but incredibly central description of the music that's happening at the party. Meanwhile, the music played on, Bach suite in B minor for flute and strings. Young Tully conducted with his usual inimitable grace, bending in swan-like undulations from the loins and tracing luscious arabesques on the air with his waving arms as though he were dancing to the music. 
A dozen anonymous fiddlers and cellists scraped at his bidding, and the great Pongiglione gluily kissed his flute. He blew across the mouth hole, and a cylindrical air column vibrated. Box meditations filled the Roman quadrangle. In the opening largo, John Sebastian had, with the help of Pongiglione's snout and the air column, made a statement. There are grand things in the world, noble things. There are men born kingly. There are real conquerors, intrinsic lords of the earth. But of an earth that is, oh, complex and multitudinous, he had gone on to reflect in the Fugal Allegro. You seem to have found the truth, clear, definite, unmistakable. It is announced by the violins. You have it. You triumphantly hold it. But it slips out of your grasp to present itself in a new aspect among the cellos, and yet again in terms of Pongiglione's vibrating air column. The parts live their separate lives. They touch, their paths cross, they combine for a moment to create a seemingly final and perfected harmony, only to break apart again. Each is always alone and separate and individual. I am I, asserts the violin. The world revolves around me. Round me, calls the cello. Round me, the flute insists. And all are equally right and equally wrong. And none of them will listen to the others. Besides being obviously gorgeous English, as always, there's a lot to unpack here. But to get the full effect of the musical motif being employed here, we have to talk a minute about Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach came from a musical family. His father was a court trumpeter, his uncle was an organist, his older brother was an organist who studied under Pachelbel. When Bach was a child, he sang soprano at the Matins Choir, which ended for him in puberty. He then started dedicating to organ with his brother, uh, he held church appointments in many places throughout Germany. Story has it, though, that Bach got really bored with traditional church music and started to experiment, which caused him some tension with the church that he was in. For those of you who have attended traditional church services at any point in your life, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, you've probably heard old hymns with a church choir. Many of you that may be musicians yourself have probably played, if you're in an orchestra or a concert band, some of these things as warm-ups. They're very linear, almost perpendicular, if that makes sense. Large chords, note, note, note few moving lines, uh, probably to help choirs learn their parts, as many of them may not have read music. Uh, they're pretty, but they're not super exciting. That's why we often use them for warm-ups. They're not difficult passages, but they're good for listening to the chords and doing some tuning. So rather than composing by finger and dictated by sound, Bach began composing by thought and expression. So instead of harmonies being dictated by the material, the pretty sounds, it became the mind. So unlike a lot of traditional church chord structure, uh, Bach's four-part harmonies became their own melodic lines, not simply one melody and then three parts that would accompany it. Each then could be its own independent train of thought. In the process of playing with four-part harmony in this way, there emerges a new concept, counterpoint. Huh, see what I did there? Which is roughly note against note, and note the emphasis on that word against. There's something very tense, antagonistic about counterpoint. Uh, it wasn't new, it wasn't an invention of Bach's per se, uh, but his use of it at the time was pretty novel. His works used counterpoint to add both depth and beauty to the sound, uh, while also making it very much more complicated for its expressive purpose. His use of it happens really in two ways. First, the fugue.
here, you can hear right away the main melodic line. The theme is established clearly right away. Then, each part enters, they're playing sometimes the exact same line, sometimes the line on a different scale or a different note of the scale, and eventually you get what kind of sounds like musical chaos. It's pleasant, but complicated. Eventually, there's no central voice, there's no melody you're listening to, and no clearly supporting harmony. At any one moment, if you pause, you might hear some kind of chord, but they may not actually align in that way. Sometimes they're tense, sometimes they're resolved. Uh, the subject of the piece is recapitulated throughout, it's modified, and then it becomes an accompaniment or a counter-subject to various mutations or augmentations as it goes. Eventually, it might be that over time the theme is completely warped and ultimately may share only one note or one rhythm with the original. In a way, it's like those word games that kids play when learning to manipulate language in the alphabet, where you start off with, like, the word cart, and then each line down the game, six lines down, it's transformed and you end up with the word tree. Which gets us to the second theme in variations. You've heard famous ones of these before, too. And while this isn't Bach, the point stands. You start with a main theme the same way you do in a fugue, uh, but then each subsequent playing of the theme, there's a subtle or really not so subtle change. By the end, it also transforms, but generally there's enough retention of the original idea to recognize it's still present. So in this passage of point-counterpoint, a famous in-the-book player uh, of the flute, Pongiglione, is playing this solo with a chamber-sized group of strings, and it's Bach suite in B minor. The work itself employs tons of the techniques discussed, uh, using fugal structures throughout the dance. And this complicated, confusing structure becomes really the thesis of this book. The idea that the instruments play their individual roles in the music, and because it's not the traditional supporting sound, even the non-solo instruments assert themselves to the ear. As he says, round me, the violin asserts, then the cello, then the flute. It seems like they come together when a chord resolves. Two may align as melody and harmony once in a while, like it says, you hold it triumphantly, and then all of a sudden they race off in their own directions again. The book is this structure. Characters are like each instrument in this music. They start at the same time as the book starts. But there are times when they're in the same scene together, having the same conversation. You might even see them, to an extent, agree. They might fall in love, but then the next scene, they're on their own, contradicting each other and sometimes themselves. But each somehow, even in the scenes where together, are separate and alone and individual. Philip, much later in the book, describes the use of these strategies for writing his own book. In a way, this might be Huxley kind of uh, heavy-handedly telling us how to read this book. The novelist modulates by reduplicating situations and characters. He shows several people falling in love, or dying, or praying in different ways. Dissimilar is solving the same problem, or vice versa, similar people confronted with dissimilar problems. In this way, you can modulate through all the aspects of your theme. You can write variations on a number of moods. But I mean, this is the way life is, though. We at least see ourselves as individuals, activating our own individual wills, but Huxley recognizes, or at least posits, some issue here. Like the end of the passage of the box suggests, 
each is always alone and separate and individual, and all are equally right and equally wrong, and none of them will listen to the others. The fact that we tunnel vision, unable to recognize others and their own individual wills, may be the exact problem with the modern era that Huxley's critiquing throughout the book. Were any of the characters actually able to empath uh, empathize and consider the themes of others, well, maybe then there's an answer. And it's not even simply about other people, it's about just listening, period. Recognizing our own small role in a much larger universal concert of things, as Lord Edward, who plays the wise fool again here, suggests. Forgive him, for he knows not what he says. It's funny how often the characters answer their own problems, but fail to listen. We hear. But how often are we actually listening? We'll go ahead and take a quick break here and come back to talk about one of the other interesting little dynamics that's playing out in this scene. Uh, and how we can use it to understand the dynamics of the rest of the chapters. Focusing here specifically on Walter as introduced in chapter 1 and Philip formally introduced in chapter 6. Welcome back! So, in quickly returning to the Bach and B minor passage, there's something else at work stylistically in the passage as well that becomes a pretty common tactic of Huxley's. It's pretty subtle in this section, but you can see it in the descriptions particularly of the flute player Pongiglione as he blew across the mouth hole and a cylindrical air column vibrated. Here, music, art, and the scientific description of sound juxtaposed here on top of it Here's why he's trying to actively kind of portray that multiplicity alluded to by both Philip and reaffirmed by Ramphian, which he does all over the book. Uh, but this isn't even the first time you see it. The first real time is right away in chapter 1. So to back up to chapter 1, the book opens with the competing psychologies of Walter Bidlake, uh, the famous painter John Bidlake's son, and his mistress Marjorie Carling. Though the book is third-person omniscient, Huxley returns focus back and forth between the thoughts and feelings as expressed narrowly by each character as this scene plays out and pretty much all the other scenes where you've got characters in conversation. It's a short scene. Uh, Walter's about to leave to the Tantamount party where he intends to get close to Lucy Tantamount. This is Lord and Lady's daughter, uh, his new flavor of the week. Well, he'd like for that to be the case. Unfortunately, though, it's not quite that simple. Uh, Marjorie, who's married to a sadistic religious drunk, who refuses to divorce her out of spite, uh, has been get living with Walter now for about two years, uh, but the fair has pretty much gone south at this point. And to make matters worse, she's pregnant. So she's here, begging him to stay instead of going to the party, uh, the elephant in the room being his pursuit of Lu Lucy, which both of them know, but neither of them dare to mention. And he finds ways of manipulating the situation so that he has to go. And the rest of the chapter ends with him running off and some of his guilty feelings mixed with massive resentments of her and the baby. And some ruminations on his desire to like the poor but his loathing of them as well. Right away, the mixture of humanistic and scientific is evident. In his description of Marjorie's situation, something that had been a single cell, a cluster of cells, a little sack of tissue, a kind of worm, a potential fish with gills, stirred in her womb and would one day become a man. A grown man suffering and enjoying, loving and hating, thinking, remembering, imagining. And what had been a blob of jelly within her body would invent a god and worship, which had been a kind of fish would create, and having created would become the battleground of disputing good and evil. What had blindly lived in her as a parasitic worm would look at the stars, would listen to music, would read poetry. 
It's a beautiful image, despite somewhat of the mendacity of this moment, which leads Walter to two important pieces of advice or words of wisdom from discussions in his past with his brother-in-law, Philip, which actually applies on a meta level to the scene. He says, One shouldn't take art too literally. It's apt to be too true, unadulterated like distilled water. When truth is nothing but the truth, it's unnatural. It's an abstraction that resembles nothing in the real world. In nature, there is always so many other irrelevant things mixed up with the essential truth. That's why art moves you, precisely because it's unadulterated with all the irrelevancies of real life. Like he says on the ship with his wife much later on, the focus of art never really matches the reality because it distills away all those irrelevancies. Huxley accounts for this to some degree in his juxtapositions like this, but you can decide if you think it's successful enough here. The other piece of advice he references of Phillips is oddly that one should be loyal to one's instincts. Walter, who fancies himself an intellectual, he's a writer and an editor for some hoity-toity literary magazine called The World, gloms onto this advice, which seems to contradict his whole position here. He recognizes this fact in a memory induced by a bad interaction with a poor guy sitting next to him as he's smoking on the train, spitting on the ground in front of his feet. Honestly, I can't say I blame him. Yuck. The moment forces him to recall a moment in his childhood where he went with his mother to visit their gardener, Wetherington, who was basically on his deathbed at that point. He describes himself as holding his breath to avoid the sick air, which reminds him of going to church and breathing in the stale air of too many people in too close of contact, which forces his recognition of his hatred of the poor. Perhaps we're brought up too wholesomely and aseptically, he thought. An education that results in one's feeling sick in the company of fellow men, one's brothers, can it be good? He would like to have loved them. But love does not flourish in an atmosphere that nauseates the lover with an uncontrollable disgust. His hatred of the poor here is also somewhat of a justification for why he deals with Marjorie the way he does. Um, and why, in a way, she disgusts him too. So why shouldn't one be loyal to one's instincts then? They're accidents of nature. They can't be ignored, so might as well follow through, right? You do get a really great encounter to Walter's argument about the poor, though. When we eventually get to the party, he runs into Frank Illage, who is actually the only deeply illuminated poor character in the book. Illage, like I said earlier, is the lab assistant to Lord uh, Edward Tantamount, whose poor family uh, and, and an accident of his own being in the right place at the right time lands him in the company of the rich. Unlike Walter, though, he has the opposite sentiment, a deep-rooted hatred of the rich. Funny enough, he ends up in conversation about this with Walter, who is himself a product of the rich, where they're discussing this. I mean, he's got a point, and it's an empathetic one, because three minutes before his conversation, he gets snubbed by Lady Edwards, who basically just forgets his name and pretends to be interested in his work for the sake of appearances, despite the fact that he's been working with the family for so long. Anyway, he makes the following point. There's something peculiarly base and ignoble and diseased about the rich. Money breeds a kind of gangrened insensitiveness. It's inevitable. Neighborliness is the touchstone that shows up the rich. The rich haven't got any neighbors. When my mother had to go out, Miss Craddock next door on the right kept an eye on us children. And my mother did the same thing for Miss Craddock when it was her turn to go out. And when somebody had broken a leg or lost his job, people helped with money and food. And how well I remember as a little boy being sent running around the village after the nurse because young Miss Foster from, from next door on the left had suddenly been taking with birth pains before she expected. 
When you live on less than four pounds a week, you've damned well got to behave like a Christian and love your neighbor. To begin with, you can't get away from him. He's practically in your backyard. There can be no refined and philosophical ignoring of his existence. You must either hate or love. And on the whole, you'd better make a shift to love because you may need his help in emergencies and he may need yours so urgently very often that there can be no question of refusing to give it. And since you must give, since if you're a human being, you can't help giving, it's better to make an effort to like the person you've got anyhow got to give to. But you rich, you have no real neighbors. You never perform a neighborly action or expect your neighbors to do you a kindness in return. It's unnecessary. You can pay people to look after you. You can hire servants to simulate kindness for three pounds a month and board. Mrs. Craddock from next door doesn't have to keep an eye on your babies when you go out. You have nurses and governesses doing it for money. No, you're generally not even aware of your neighbors. You live at a distance from them. Each of you is boxed up in his own secret house. There may be tragedies going on behind the shutters, but the people next door don't know anything about it. Privacy is a great luxury, very pleasant, I agree, but you pay for luxuries. People aren't moved by misfortunes they don't know about. Ignorance is insensitive bliss. In a poor street, misfortune can't be hidden. Life's too public. People have their neighborly feeling kept in constant training. But the rich never have a chance of being neighborly to their equals. The best they can do is to be mawkish about the suffering of their inferiors, which they can never begin to understand, and to be so patronizingly kind. He nails Walter right on the head with this one. But to be fair, Illich is just far from perfect himself. But we won't digress that far just yet. We've got plenty of time to expose him. So unfortunately for Walter, while he wants to be an intellectual, he fully falls to the instincts, the emotional side of being, which is shown very deeply in his dealings with Lucy. We'll come back to that one next week. So of course this book is a layering of points and counterpoints. You see the counterpoint between the love and hatred of the rich and poor here in Walter and Illage, but there's a more important philosophical point counterpoint that's happening between Walter and Philip. Uh, I've talked a little bit about Philip here already, but to give him a little bit more stable background, we don't actually meet him until the sixth chapter, although he's been brought up multiple times by other characters to this point. Uh, like Walter, Philip is a writer, although in a different way. Uh, Walter's a literary critic and an essayist. Philip is the novelist. At this point in the novel, he and his wife Eleanor are doing what they do best, traveling. Chapter 6 shows us the I am I and round me that is their marriage, as each of them, though they're married, is alone and separate and individual and boxed up in their own secret house of selfhood. Eleanor, like her brother Walter, is an emotional one. Uh, she's all about experience and feeling in the moment, but she lives in a deeply nostalgic daze. Throughout the chapter and throughout their marriage, you'd have to assume, Eleanor is constantly reveling in the romance of the past, which to some degree is what she hopes to recreate in all of these travels. Uh, as it says of her, she remembered everything, remembered with the minute precision of one who loves to explore and reconstruct the past, of one who is forever turning over and affectionately verifying each precious detail of recollected happiness. There's definitely some Gatsby-level stuff for you here. I mean, really, this is the British equivalent of that tale. If you like Gatsby, you should like this one. It's just slightly more pretentiously British. Uh, it never quite gets there, though, uh, as Philip really, in essence, kind of stunts that nostalgia for her. Unlike her, Philip is desperately introverted. He's stoical, disconnected, and as it says... 
All his life long, he had walked in a solitude in a private void into which nobody, not his mother, not his friends, not his lovers, had ever been permitted to enter. This frustrates Eleanor, and in the past, she's attempted to set him up with multiple affairs. In an attempt to kind of break him of that habit, uh, it gets him, she wants him to feel violently passionate, which is, this all seems kind of odd. This is an odd choice, something to do for your husband. Uh, assuming, though, that he's loyal to her, which he is, and that the affair wouldn't force him to leave, which it probably wouldn't, she rationalizes this desire of hers in a kind of weird self-martyring way uh, in the love of and for the sake of his art. But the frustration is still pretty clear. She even threatens to leave him and have her own affair in this chapter. Uh, but the book is basically kind of a game of chicken for their marriage. Who's going to renege first on the affair thing? But in chapter 6, they're both in India, they're on vacation, and in this particular scene, they're riding along and thinking and having this broken conversation. The conversation goes poorly as he answers the personal world with the impersonal, the particular and feeling word with the intellectual generalization. This is probably best demonstrated by the final scene of the chapter, when a dog jumps out in front of the car and nearly escapes, but there's another dog that's pursuing it, and that one's not so lucky. Oh, cried Eleanor, it'll be... The headlights swerved and swung straight again. There was a padded jolt, as one of the wheels had passed over a stone, but the stone yelped. Run over. It has been run over. The Indian chauffeur looked around at them, grinning. They could see the flash of his teeth. Dog, he said. He was proud of his English. Poor beast, Eleanor shuddered. It was his fault, said Philip. He wasn't looking. That's what comes of running after the female of one species. There was a silence. It was Philip who broke it. Morality'd be very queer, he reflected aloud, if we loved seasonally, not all year round. More s moral and immoral would change from one month to the other. Primitive societies are apt to be more seasonal than cultivated ones. Even in Sicily, there are twice as many births in January as in August, which proves conclusively that in the spring the young man's fancy. But nowhere only in the spring. There's nothing human quite analogous to heat in mares or she-dogs, except, he added, except perhaps in the moral sphere. A bad reputation in a woman allures like the signs of heat in a bitch. Ill fame announces accessibility. Absence of heat is the animal's equivalent of the chaste woman's habits and principles. Eleanor listened with interest, and at the same time a kind of horror. Even the squashing of a wretched animal was enough to set that quick, untiring intelligence to work. A poor, starved pariah dog had its back broken under the wheels, and the incident evoked from Philip a selection from the vital statistics of Sicily, a speculation about the relativity of morals, a brilliant psychological generalization. It was amazing, it was unexpected, it was wonderfully interesting, but oh, she almost wanted to scream. That about sums up the situation of their marriage, really. She gets emotional, he retreats into his brain. Fun. Alone, the narratives of Walter and Philip show two different philosophies of life. For Walter, it's the emotional man who wants to be an intellect. For Philip, it's the intellectual who wants to feel. Neither get it, though. But I think Philip might be the more sympathetic of the two. Although, honestly, that could be personal bias. I think Walter is dumb and sleazy. While I find myself identifying more and uh, often overanalyzing of the self kind of situations of Philip. It might be an unfair assessment on my part. Anyway, this becomes really more interesting, though, when you know Huxley. 
Huxley himself claimed to be a mixture of these two. But how? Two contradicting positions. Well, does that then mean that he is the multiplicity of views, something more akin to that balanced proposed incomplete, uh, that's incompletely rendered by Rampion, but more expressly given in his final novel, Island? He came at this novel with definite purpose. In some of his letters, Huxley had this to say about the planning process. I am very busy preparing for and doing bits of an ambitious novel, the sums of which will be to show a piece of life, not only from a good many individual points of view, but also under its various aspects, such as scientific, emotional, political, aesthetic, etc. The same person is simultaneously a mass of atoms, a physiology, a mind, an object with large shape that can be painted, a cog in the economic machine, a voter, a lover, etc., etc. I shall try to imply, at any rate, the existence of the other categories of existence behind the ordinary categories employed uh, in judging everyday emotional life. It will be difficult, but interesting. And he's not wrong. Uh, he really encapsulates the very points here made by John Dewey in How We Think. The language is there, and precise, to each of those seemingly separated subjects, and find real and practical application uh, modeled by those various types of people. The book itself is a human zoology, as he calls it. In fact, it's Philip that makes that claim later in the novel. It really does feel like a zoo. Each person alone in their little cage displays, uh, playing out their narratives for us to just watch and see. We are permitted really deep and op open psychological views, though. Like Gatsby, we occupy a distanced reserve, but unlike Gatsby, we find ourselves in this one. We're not permitted to occupy a moral high ground. I hope that you'll find yourself in this novel as we discuss the characters. I won't say it's always comfortable, it isn't. Nothing is worse than finding out you are Marjorie's. You won't like it. It's an ugly mirror to confront. Uh, most people, I think, are at least partly Walter, though I hope none of you are Lucy. Well, if you are, maybe you'll learn something about that in this. Anyway, the goal, though, in this reading is a metacognitive one. We come to recognize what our loyalties are to our own instincts, um, checking our intellectual and philosophical inconsistencies, and finding the life therein. In shedding a very determinate light on all of those different possibilities and the combinations of harmony and melody and tension and release in life, hopefully we'll find that we are, while maybe separate and alone and individual, that we can take some of the advice of Dewey's philosophies. While these characters poorly know themselves and then poorly communicate themselves, which is what contributes to their own kind of inward isolation, Dewey's advice that education, and maybe by extension life, should be a series of conversations, of dialogues, of the multiplicity of views, of language, and of mediation. Even if it's imperfect, as language is, in a lot of ways, imprecise, uh, and sometimes it's hard for us to externalize our own internal situations, at least it's a worthy goal. We cannot permit ourselves to box ourselves up in our own secret houses, as Illich's criticism of the rich kind of metaphorically shows us about ourselves when applied that way. Thank you for listening today. Linked in the episode's information, you'll find many resources for the things we've discussed today. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard and you want to hear more of this kind of thing, subscribe and check back next week for the next installment in this series. I'll be discussing the next few chapters of Point Counterpoint. We'll get to Lucy, my favorite character, Spandrel, and we'll get a little bit more meaningful introduction to Rampion, who's made an appearance in this discussion today. 
Uh, we'll also make sure we connect also to the philosophy. We'll fill in the details with the critical idealism and Kantian ethics as well in Huxley's work. So signing off, I'm Stacey Cabrera, and this was Fill in the Details. Have a good one.